This is Juror 13. You are Juror 13. Tonight you'll hear interviews, opinions, and reports. Then you will have an opportunity to decide. This is Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, the Randy Stevens case, Savannah, Georgia. Status, currently unsolved, 21 years. Juror 13 is brought to you in partnership with Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is offering an $80,000 reward for tips leading to the successful capture and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Randy Stevens. At the end of this program, learn how to contact Crime Stoppers anonymously to help solve this case. The ideas, insights, and theories expressed in the following program are opinions and are not necessarily those of the producers. All persons are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Welcome to Juror 13. I'm Tom Milady. Shortly after Randy's murder and after the crime scene had been processed, the detectives began their investigation. Now, I've spoken to just about everyone I could about the investigation, and I've attempted to speak with a few others who, for some reason or another, declined to be involved with this project. Now, it's puzzling because we're partnered up with Crime Stoppers and we're trying to provide the cold case squad with any kind of information we can come up with. So you'd think that people would be cooperative. On the flip side, I know that despite some current public opinion, there are a lot of great people that work in law enforcement. A lot of the folks I know sacrifice more than just their time and effort on cases. In a lot of instances, I've seen it cause a breakdown in their views, their relationships, and sometimes worse. It takes a superhuman effort to be bombarded with constant dishonesty and the nastier side of humankind and not detach from it a bit. On this episode of Juror 13, we'll speak to those who were interviewed in the case's inception and we'll try, try I say, because a lot is still under wraps, to decipher what was actually done prior to the investigation landing in the lap of the cold case squad inconsistencies in statements, direction, and theory. Stay with me for this installment of Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, The Randy Stevens Case, Episode 5, Which Way Did They Go? It appears that the lead detective on this case was a guy called Armando Tamargo. Uh, He was identified by everyone I spoke with as the guy with all the pertinent information And I saw him uh, speak in a newscast on WSAV. Uh, As you've heard me say repeatedly, this is a cold case. It's a homicide, therefore still an open case, but it's common practice not to divulge case details. For the record, I called Mr. Tamargo. He was cordial, but of course curious as to who the heck I was and how I got his number, understandably so. He informed me that if he felt uh, Savannah Police Department was okay with it, we could see how he felt after we got that approval. To be specific, this is the email I received on the 31st of May, 2023. Quote, though it is no longer my case, I am steadfast in wanting to do what is best in the interest of Randy and his family. I need to think about it and ask the Savannah Police Department for their input, unquote. It's noble sentiment for sure, but it's a little over five months later and I'm still hoping that it's true. 
and there's no doubt in my mind, somebody out there in the community has some information concerning this homicide. This actual particular investigation took us across county and state lines. Uh, we conducted masses amounts of interviews trying to generate information on this case. So that was then Detective Armando Tamargo talking about his investigation. In any event, here we are 21 years later, and without his guidance, I was forced to navigate through what happened by asking the folks that were involved. People that are left in the wake of a crime like this often try to interject their feelings and theories into the investigation. I can tell you that's true because my phone is ringing off the hook all the time with a lot of people involved, pointing the finger at each other, talking about what they think. And I can understand Detective Tamargo at the time was probably frustrated by a lot of people trying to tell him how to run his investigation. It can prove distracting. And there is, however, the slightest chance that those comments will provide even a small piece to go on, something to build on. So you really do need to listen. Even if it's distracting or irritating to you, you need to sift through it. And if you can't politely explain that their thoughts are important, but there's other work to be done at the moment, you got to remember that rapport helps get intel. I'm not sure that that was the approach Mr. Tamargo had in this situation. However, he's a professional and there had to be some kind of strategy in mind. I just never got to hear what it was. I also need to inform you that within the first week or so of the investigation, Ms. Stevens encountered and interacted with a detective working with Mr. Tamargo in this case, Detective Wilkins. Detective Wilkins, whose father worked with Ms. Stevens at Beach High School, had to recuse himself from the case for same reasons. The first person I spoke to about the way the investigation went was, of course, one of the victims, Linda Stevens. Ms. Stevens intimated to me that Mr. Tamargo, to her knowledge, was not at the scene when she was, or she did not have knowledge of him being there. But he did contact her within a day or two and ask to have her in for an interview. I asked her how the whole process started and how soon it was before she was cleared from the suspect list. I don't know when he took me off. But uh, I do remember him questioning me. It was him and a female late officer was in the office. Linda went on to explain here that she remembers that there was also a female officer present for the interview. She remembers the woman providing a box of Kleenex. When I asked her for the basis of the questioning, however, it was a little more difficult to recall. Margo was asking me questions. Right. And the questions, you remember what they were? No, I do not. Linda and I spoke about the close Stevens family friend, Barry Green. Barry was by all accounts a great guy. However, he was a major player in the Savannah drug trafficking scene. And he was potentially one of the reasons that the police were looking into a number of suspects associated with that world. We discussed it for a moment. To hear that in, in the street, that he was the man. Pascal Quarterman, a.k.a. Barry Green a.k.a. Cubby Bear, now deceased, in that order. Well-liked, well-thought-of, well-connected. Maybe not so much in that order. Mr. Quarterman, who we shall hear forthwith call Barry Green, is perhaps someone we should take a moment to discuss. 
Mr. Green was close enough to Randy, Linda, and Bobby Stevens to literally be described as nephew. He called Bobby Stevens' Uncle Bobby. As I mentioned before, Barry Green was, for lack of a better term, a big-time drug dealer. He, however, from all interviews I conducted, was not connected through that world to Randy Stevens or Stevens Racing. Randy worked on bikes for him and tried to mentor him into the legitimate side of the sport. Bobby Stevens and Derek Duncan had slightly different pasts than Randy, and unfortunately, I think that the initial phase of the investigation probably, and once again, I'm saying probably here because I can't get a statement from Mr. Tamargo, but I think they had a primary focus around those associated with Barry Green because of his criminal lifestyle. I spoke to Bobby about Barry for a little more insight, and as you can hear, he chose his words carefully. Barry Green um, called me Uncle Bobby. Um, helped raise him, a lot younger than I am, but um, very, very respectful guy, but Barry could just about do anything that he wanted to do mm -hmm. because of his lifestyle. He was, Barry was well known to the police and other people for some of the things he did outside of regular business? Or oh, yes, yes, no doubt. Um, you know, in the racing world, everybody's not clean races, everybody's not racing off of their income, you know, they have other opportunities to get into things and mm -hmm. Barry was one of those guys that got into things that would create problems for you somewhere down the line right. if you didn't change. Getting back to Linda's experiences with the initial investigation, months after her interview with Detective Tamargo, he called her to report something that still troubles her to this day. Um, Detective Tamago called me. I was at school, and I called him back from my cell phone, and he told me that um, someone just pawned Randy's gun because I gave them the serial number to the gun. Mm -hmm. And um, I told him I was going to come down when I get off work. So I went downtown, and um, he was telling me they, they got the guy, and they questioned him. And I asked who was it. He couldn't tell me the man's name or none of that. And um, and then he said, "Well, we we're we're gonna have to let him go because he said he bought the gun. I don't know if those exact words, but it it was to the fact that um, he said he bought the gun from someone on the street, and they they didn't hold him. I I, I didn't I I didn't think that was right. All right. So if you remember, there was a nine millimeter handgun of Randy's." in that briefcase with all the money. What Linda is referring to here is the fact that the police recovered that handgun and that the man that was in possession of the weapon was let go. This may or may not be significant based on what they learned from the guy. I'm guessing here, but common sense told me that this was the only real connection that they had. They let him go? Maybe they had to let him go. I asked her if they ever had any other leads within those years. That, that was the only lead they had. So the focus of the investigation quickly moved to Derek Duncan. And as we've heard in a previous episode, Linda had heard from a friend who alleged that they heard Derek Duncan remarking about perhaps robbing Randy for the $6,000 Jacksonville prize money. The reason I said that 
When we left the race that Saturday in Jacksonville, there was a race Sunday the next day in, mm -hmm. in Savannah. Mm -hmm. And a mutual friend of me and Randy's came over to the house and told me that when they was at that track Sunday, Derek made the comment, we ought to go over there and rob that I told Detective Tamago. I spoke with Derek about his interactions with Detective Tamargo and what he was asked. He was uh, he just just gathering information, simple questions, simple questions about um, um, did I ever go inside of Randy's house or um, how often did I did I go to his house? You know, just simple things, and you know, did and his what kind of friends he have, and right. stuff like that. It's just, just just simple stuff, you know. But the last thing he did say was. If we got to come back, if we get to call you back down here, we got a problem. Derek told me that they contacted him again within two weeks, and they called him back down to the precinct. There was some trepidation at first, but he told me he had nothing to hide, so he wanted to go. I asked him what the interview was like, and he told me it was much different this time. Imagine uh, a horseshoe and Tomago in the middle of it, and I'm at the backside looking at him and he he started saying that um they were getting a lot of phone calls on me the silent witness that i was a double shooter and he went on and on and on and on he, he said he got too much information that he said you need to go ahead and talk now you know and he, he he was he was grilling the interview evolved into a heated and confrontational situation mr duncan told me that he stood up and approached detective tomargo and confronted him this way I said, no, you told me you got something on me. And you said, if you call me back down here, then we got a problem. He said, he said Mr. Duncan, he said, um, thank you for coming down. It was as if Detective Tamargo made sure that he personally would let Derek know of the surveillance that he was now under. I was coming down Whitaker, right. Whitaker and I crossed Congress Street. Right. And he was behind me. He pulled me over. He just put his lights on me. He got in the car and came to my truck. I said, man, what, what? He said, you better stop sign. I said, man, I stopped. He said, okay. And that's when he went back to the car and, and let me go. And then, well, that was the end. Derek Duncan never heard from them again. Not just Tamargo. He never heard from anyone associated with the case. The police use a standard tool where they are allowed to be dishonest with you in order to try to elicit a confession. If you were to be interviewed by a police officer that was confronting you, trying to get you to confess to something you did not do, how do you feel you would respond? You are Juror 13, so cast your vote and tell us what you think at Juror13.live. Carlos Wilkerson, Randy's best friend, was also interviewed by Detective Tamargo. I asked him what they had talked about. They mentioned some stuff about, you know, what what was my relationship with Randy and how did we become friends and right. Barry Green, what, what was his dealings with you know, Barry Green. Some of the question was like, "Did I? How did I get to know Randy?" Right. Um, 
then I know different people that Randy associated with and asked me, you know, my opinion of what they they thought that Randy was doing. Did I think Randy was in anything illegal? Right. And I told them no. So you can hear it again. They were looking at drug and criminal connections here, and they should. It seems, however, that that was the main focus. As a matter of fact, when family members told Detective Tamargo about their concerns, he shut them down curtly, and he made some pretty serious claims early in the game. I just want to know what his intel was. If he was saying that he knew from his gut what was going on that soon, I'd like to know why. Here's Bobby describing his frustrations. You were asking them to look at Linda. Yes. I mean, let's start from the inside. What was Um, his reaction to that? He bet his badge that Linda had nothing to do with it. And this was Sandra Stevens Small's initial experience with the investigation. Detective Tamargo never contacted me. I made contact with Detective Tamargo to get updates on the homicide of my brother. Those conversations did not go well. Um, Tamargo was always very defensive, and from the onset of the homicide, he was determined that Linda was not involved with the homicide and that he would bet his badge that she did not have anything to do with it. I just want to know why he was so sure. I don't need to know all the specifics, but I know that he was sure. I just want to know why, even in a general way, so we can move on with this. I mean, there's no record of gunshot residue tests or any on-scene investigation that usually occurs. And this is no fault of Linda's. She seems to me like the kind of person who would welcome almost any investigation. It just looks odd. It was easy for him to rule her out, but how did he do it? There's another element of this case that was broadcast in the media Uh, Linda also mentioned it when she talked about the first officer on the scene who stated that he encountered a 1980 beige box Chevy Capri. He said it was fleeing the area as he raced to the residence. Tamargo says the suspects fled Bobby's home after the shooting, driving a 1980 four-door Chevy Capri with shiny hubcaps. Wait, what? Now we're on to something. But where did Nikki Gaskins from WSAV get this intel? I spoke with two different people who preferred to remain anonymous that claimed that a goldish box Chevy with chrome wheels matching that description was seen in Midway, Georgia. Then days later, they noticed that the car had been repainted. It belonged to an associate of Barry Green's. I'm currently seeking to locate that individual. I believe I have it narrowed down to a couple of people. On a different note, after speaking with the cold case squad, I learned that the initial report shows, indeed, that Mrs. Stevens did actually state that there was only one assailant. And yet, we heard this. In October 2002, Randy Stevens was leaving this home on Duval Street, heading to work, when two men attacked him, shot him four times, and robbed him of his money. So here's where our problems begin. Now you can hear the reporter clearly stating that two men attacked him. 
Where is she getting this? Now, I know she's not getting it from Linda. So this is where I start to get confused. It seems like there could only been one or two people that she would ask for this information. So when we look at what we are allowed to see and hear of Detective Tamargo's investigation, we're left with one of two things to conclude. He either had a definite source of intel at the start of this investigation, or he had a gut feeling that didn't pan out. We won't know for sure unless he actually speaks with me, but the obvious downside to this is that neither possibility worked. The upside, however, is it is now in the hands of Savannah's cold case squad, a group of seasoned detectives dedicated to listening to and following up on tips. In order to generate any leads on this case, this is what you have to do. It's an old case and that's where you end up. Hopefully with your help and some of the things that we may uncover together, we can give them some of those leads. I spoke candidly with the guy who heads up the cold case squad, Lieutenant Zach Burdett, he seems to be an affable guy, and he was as open as he could be with me. We had a couple of lengthy conversations, and I'm convinced that these guys are not going to let it go. Even now, there are active leads. On the next installment of Juror 13, we speak with Lieutenant Zach Burdett of the Cold Case Squad about some of the main points of the investigation. We'll speak with Sandra Stevens-Smalls, Randy's little sister, who has never stopped seeking answers in her brother Randy's murder. We get closer to the truth about the owner and occupants of the box Chevy that was seen fleeing the scene. As we press on, in the next episode of Juror 13, The Randy Stevens Case, Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, Episode 6, The Long Goodbye. Hi, this is Tom Lady again. Um, this is something I hate to do, but it's something that's extremely necessary. We need to ask you for donations. Um, subscriptions are also very important, but if you can, we're trying to keep things up and running and move this case forward. And it's going to take a little bit of money, so I have to ask. Uh, you can find the links on the website, juror13.live. Thank you very much. I know I talked to you all about Crime Stoppers last week and the value that this tremendous anonymous program holds. The Randy Stevens case has a reward for $80,000. And I've stated that before. Everybody knows that now. There's $80,000 out there if you can help solve the case. I know that you are out there. I know that you are. I know that you're listening and I know that you know something about this case. So take a good long look in the mirror and understand that there's a big difference between doing the right thing and snitching. So choose to do the right thing. The Stevens family needs your help. Click on Crime Stoppers logo or press play on the Crime Stoppers executive director, Brittany Heron's explanation of how to go about helping and collecting your reward. Juror13.live. When the episode is over, the facts remain. Juror13.live. Photos, facts, and faces. See the people and the events that we talk about in every episode. Read opinions, reports, and theories. Vote on Juror13.live. 
You are Juror 13. Interact with special guests on announced dates and post your opinions and surveys about certain people, places, and things associated with Juror 13. Download episodes. Join our first alerts list. Help us to help the Stevens family, folks. Remember, you can listen to new episodes of Juror 13 weekly on Spotify, or you can just listen to any past episode or update at any time you desire on Juror13.live. Juror 13 relies on your support. If you'd like to help us continue our mission to help the Stevens family, we gratefully accept any donation or contribution. Simply go to the website, juror13.live, and click on the links. Juror 13 would like to thank Linda Stevens, Sandra Stevens-Smalls, Bobby Stevens, Derek Duncan, Lieutenant Zach Burdett and the Savannah Police Department Cold Case Squad, Maya Eschett, Morton Fine and David Friedkin, my producer, the esteemed Martine Rothstein, and all of the wonderful subscribers and generous folks who have contributed to Juror 13. And in case you've forgotten, I'm Tom Milady, but you are Juror 13.